When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of New Books in Neuroscience. My name is Joseph Fridman. I'm a science communicator based in Boston, Massachusetts, and I co-host this channel with an amazing array of fellow scientists and researchers, including Dr. Anne-Sophie Barwich, Dr. Christopher Harris, Dr. John Griffiths, and Dr. Victoria Reedman. Special thanks, of course, uh, to Marshall Poe and the entire team at New Books Network for making this possible. Today on the podcast, we'll be talking to the author of Oxford University Press's The Blind Storyteller, released in 2020, the subtitle How We Reason About Human Nature. I have with me Dr. Iris Berendt from Northeastern University. Hi, Iris. How are you doing? Hey, Joseph. Really nice being with you. Yeah, it's it's fantastic um, to get the chance to chat about this book. Uh, I really want to get into some of the uh, review that you do in this book and um, this incredibly novel thesis that you've set out. But before that, I want to hear a little bit about your own personal journey through the world of research and science. Um, you've been a cognitive musicologist. Um, you've done uh, yeah, a, an array of incredible work. I'd like to hear what, what got you to writing about human nature at this point. It's funny that you mentioned that because as I reflect on my career, actually everything that I did, I did all kinds of things, right? I studied music cognition, I did some work on reading, I moved to study language, and each and every one of those turns was really motivated by the same question, which is my interest in human nature and whether there is such a thing that exists. Um, I started my interest in music cognition because I was interested in the possibility that music has in some way universal grammar, that the musics of some remote people uh, out there in Mexico um, would have a similar structure to the music in other parts of the world. And I was interested in uh, finding ways to uh, address this question experimentally. At the time, it was super difficult to do that. I moved to an easier question, which is asking about universal grammar in language. Um, This is what I've been doing for many years in my lab. Um, The question there is trying to understand why is that that we humans have this capacity for language and other animals do not. Um, They have their own system of communication, which is great, but it's different in kind from what we have. And I try to understand what's the basis of that. So these are hard questions. I don't think I solved any of them. uh, But as I've been talking to them, to people, and try to tell them what I do, I've noticed some really strange reactions. 
And those, in turn, brought me to try to understand why people think this way, why lay people have these attitudes about um, uh, the uh, about innateness, about mind and bodies. And at some point, I figured that those two things are actually linked to each other, and those were actually uh, what brought me to write this book. And and not to put too fine a point on it, but um, you're talking about universal grammar. This means. Um, that you're part of a school of folks um, affiliated with, say, linguists like Noam Chomsky, um, that you're arguing that there are um, strongly, that there's strong evidence for there being certain innate features of human learning, of the way that humans um, structure, the ways that they communicate, um, you know, maybe with themselves and their own brain and then and then with each other. Um, and this school takes a fairly strong position on this topic. And then you would have to go out and meet people maybe in the field who might not have this position and especially lay people who are resistant to this position, even though you're marshalling all of this evidence, you're showing what it is that's happening in the lab. Um, And, and so, and, and so what were, were, and so what were some of those experiences like, what are some of the things that you might've heard people say or get shocked at? So let me just clarify that. Uh, I see the work of Noam Chomsky really just as the point, my starting point. Mm. So I look at that as entirely an empirical uh, issue. It's not, uh, you know, I don't sign to a camp. I do not, it's not a religion that one signs into. I just think it's a super interesting question, regardless of whether the answer is yes is right or no is wrong. It's a strong scientific hypothesis in the sense that it's something that one can go to the lab and test. And that makes it a really interesting and also a deep statement about human nature. Mm. So um, I don't know, you know, I'm skeptical like everybody else. And what I do is just examine the question. Um, But what was strange and what brought me to really write this book is that people thought that the question itself doesn't make sense, Hmm. right? It's not like they came and said, oh, when you're looking at whether there is something like universal grammar. So in particular, let me perhaps take a step back. The notion of universal grammar, it's the hypothesis that the reason why you and I, but not my cat Leah, have language is because we are born knowing certain mega principles of language and it's those principles that allow us to subsequently acquire language so there is something that we know innately and that innate knowledge is our basis for our capacity for language so this is really buying into this hypothesis that some ideas some things that we know are available to us innately and lay people think that makes absolutely no sense that this is a an oxymoron, that the question itself is ill-formed. So again, it, they're not telling me, you know, you didn't control for X, Y, Z in your experiments. It's rather the question that you're asking, they just give you the blank stare at that. And, and I never understood why, right? Uh, we are in the 21st century and so forth, so we all know about the genome. Why, <laughs> why is it such a crazy question for us to consider? So being a psychologist, you saw this as its own interesting phenomena exactly. worth delving into. Exactly. Um, and before before we get into breaking down some of these elements of, of this argument, some of the um, ideas, some of the history of this work, in a nutshell, what do you find in this book and how is it different from what people have said before? 
So the thesis of the book is our troubles with human nature arise from human nature itself. Our difficulty to understand how the mind works arise precisely from the core principles that drive how we reason, how we reason about uh, the physical world, how we reason about the minds of others, how we reason about the natural world. Each of those principles are there. They guide even how infants think. But when you put them together, it turns out that they collide. So while many other people have recognized that those principles exist individually, what has not been noticed is that those actually stand in competition with each other. And when you see how they interact, uh, you, you, you understand that these are bound to lead us to all kinds of crazy conclusions, which people, in fact, fall into. So th- this book should be of interest to anybody involved in this huge field, right, of the human mind trying to understand itself. If they're interested in the um, particular nuances or you know, emergent kind of maybe not conspirological, but just systematic uh, issues with the way that we reason about ourselves. Um, Anyone that's interested uh, in developmental psychology, in the study of what is innate or not, and the huge amount of debates that that impinges on, they should be interested in a book like this. I hope, yeah. Fantastic. So let's let's get a little bit into it. So um, you said that innateness was uh, something that seemed to people argue, sorry. So let's get into it. You said that when you would uh, begin uh, your talks with, 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 with the idea that you're about to ask and answer the question of whether or not a certain feature of, say, language acquisition or sequence learning was innate or not, that that would strike lay people as an ill-posed question. Um, it wasn't that they had issues even with the evidence that you brought to bear. They had a priori kind of resistance to the even the form of the question. So, Precisely. It's the question itself that struck them as crazy. And so... Let's talk a little bit then about this idea that might strike us all a little as, as crazy. Um, there are probably many ways to say this. I don't know of a succinct definition myself, but what does it mean for something, uh, say a feature or a phenomenon or a trend, say of development or behavior? What does it mean for something um, about us to be innate? That you don't learn it from evidence. You know, that, uh, so for example, uh, so the idea is that some of the notions that you know arise not because you have seen many instances of the same and you somehow generalize from there, but rather that there are some core principles that guide, uh, that, that are present in the mind innately. So to give you a concrete example, right? So how do you know what objects are and how objects behave? Uh, you know, if a newborn infants were to see two balls, two billiard balls on a table, one is stationary, another come towards it, um, how would they expect this interaction to happen, right? Would they expect a ball that comes and hits the other so the stationary one would start moving immediately upon contact? Or would they be equally open to the possibility that the stationary one would be hit, stand there a little, think for what it's going to do in life, and then start moving, right? Um, How would infants know about that and how objects behave? Well, one possibility, the empiricist story, is you have seen many, many uh, interactions like that, and you figure, aha, this is how objects behave. 
the nativist perspective is infants come with certain core principles that include constraints on what objects are and what they behave. Uh, for example, the uh, psychologist Elizabeth Spelke suggested that infants know that objects move by contact. Um, you can test this hypothesis in the lab, and it turns out that that's exactly what newborn infants know. Um, of course, one could so so that's the proposal, right? That that's the hypothesis that this particular aspect of knowledge is innate. Can we be sure that this evidence demonstrates that? That's a separate question, right? So you might wonder, well, could if it emerge from the infant's interaction in utero and so forth? But what's important right now is that's the hypothesis that we are testing. And it's not always easy to evaluate it. And so I, I, I always have trouble with this idea a little bit. Um, but the way that you might test something like this in... Um, infants um, in in babies is you might show them uh, examples um, by each of those two principles, right? Mm -hmm. The ball is hit and then upon contact, the momentum is transferred and the ball keeps moving or the ball is hit and then agentically it seems to think a little bit and then and then move. Um, and the babies might be surprised by mm -hmm. one of these or the other. Uh, but in general, you're, you're, you're paying attention to what the baby is paying attention to in studies like this. Can you tell us a little bit about um, how scientists might think in setting up these experiments? And then what sort of things do they do they show? I, I know that there are things um, babies are, you know, there are all sorts of part whole issues. There's physical contact. There's mm -hmm. numeracy ideas. There's mm -hmm. the ideas about whether or not, um, you know, uh, motions are followed by sounds that are appropriate to those motions. Mm -hmm. um, but take us a little bit into this world of um, developmental psychology for folks who might not um, might not have reviewed it before or I've been privy to it. Sure. So, so there is a large body of evidence that looks at what uh, infants and in some cases newborn infants know. So what do they know about objects? What do they know about agents? What do they know about language? And what you do is start with a specific hypothesis and test it. So in the case of objects moving by contact, these experiments actually have been done. And then you, what you do is present newborn infants with two scenarios, and one of them is possible and one of them is impossible. And you look at their reactions. In this case, you look at how long they look at the two cases. And what has been shown is that consistently infants look longer. They stare at the impossible event. Um, and via appropriate controls, you demonstrate that the most likely explanation is, in fact, the contact between the events. Um, so in that way, you can look at infants' notion of um, uh, objects and in particular contact. You can in the same way look at what infants know about agents. Um, in similar experiments, in fact, infants have been presented with agents and one agent uh, can, uh, the question was, would infants expect uh, you and I, when we meet, whether you expect me to be able to move on my own or do you need to bump into me for me to move? And the answer is not at all, right? They understand that agents are um, independent in this way. They can move on their own accord. Some agents are helpful. Others are not. Infants, three-month-old infants are sensitive to that as well. Um, infants have a rudimentary understanding of number. They know that four lights and four sounds send 
let's share a property in common of four, um, which they will respond to differently compared to, say, four lights and eight sounds. Um, infants have rudimentary understanding of language. They know that blog, which is a syllable that is popular across language, language is different to syllables like lbog, L-B-O-G. Um, human brains are prepared to process the better syllables. So when you take newborn infants out of the hospital, this is the research that I was involved in, um, you present them with the good syllables, you see that it's easier for the brain to process compared to the worst syllables. So all the indications that there could very well be some innate core principles that are available to infants innately. You rally, uh, uh, Eris, in, in, in this book, a great deal um, of, of other researchers who have themselves written book, books about innate ideas that humans aren't um, blank slates, at least when it comes to perception of these things like helpful or um, harmful agents or things like goal-directed behavior or properties of the physical world. Mm-hmm. Um, can I ask a little bit why it is that uh, certain things are first questioned as innate or not? And what, you know, is it that we test whether or not every single feature of perception or cognition or judgment are innate or not? Or that we've learned to fine tune um, those questions to particular phenomena that we believe should be conserved and, you know, pretty, even even in a baby that's as young as three months old, um, that should be pretty obviously uh, demonstrable. So I think you're asking two questions. The yes. first is, uh, how does a scientist come up with hypotheses as what to test? And, yeah. and the second is why those particular aspects might be innate in infants. Yes. What motivates a scientist? I don't know. Well, you know, there, there's some interest in philosophy there. Uh, whatever, you know, you, you woke up in the morning and you had this idea. That's not, I think, relevant. I think more What's more relevant is why might infant have these innate ideas? Why does it shake out to be these particular features? Yeah. Yeah. And I think there are very good reasons for infants to be, uh, uh, evolutionary reasons to be beneficial for infants to understand what objects are. Um, You know, think about a chick following its mother. It needs to know what the mother is, how to separate the mother from, you know, what's around the mother. And in fact, some of those experiments have been done in a comparative ways in humans and non-humans with similar results. So it makes sense for a newborn infant to know what a human body is like to parse the body out of its environment. It makes sense for human aid to, for infants to understand that agents have goals of their own, that they are motivated by mental states, that they are different from um, objects in this way. Um, numerosity and quantities are things that are helpful. Uh, so those two make sense. Um, Perhaps even understanding about the natural world, although this is a little more iffy, there is evidence that some understanding of um, inheritance is present in humans cross-culturally, not necessarily in young children. So that's that's a more complicated case. But all those cases, yeah, there are good evolutionary reasons why it might be beneficial for creatures to have th- those particular type of aspects in a rudimentary fashion. So it may very well turn out to be the case that what we get is kind of placeholders that ultimately get filled. So my notion of object as an adult and the infant may not be exactly the same, 
But still, that core understanding that I was born with demonstrably still shaped how people think throughout life. And so is it is it fair to characterize um, many of these nativists as saying, look, it's clear that a combination of um, evolution and the developmental course of a human infant set them up with a foundation and some scaffolding for exactly. a bunch of different um, types of cognition, of perception, um, and the structure that ends up being built there um, can change culturally in different ways. You might have all these ideas about numerosity, but then in your culture, you might have a different sense of, you know, what numbers are, or totally. what, what, what many is, what countable and uncountable quantities Demonstrably are. Demonstrably so. Yes. Demonstrably so. So, in fact, we know that a hunter-gatherer in the Amazon, the Piraha, who don't have specific a language that has specific numbers and number of words don't have the capacity to think seven, eight, nine, ten recursively as we do. So absolutely, this would be an example of how this scaffolding is indeed shaped by experience. And is there work in primatology that's that's similar to this? Yes, that- absolutely. So the work in number cognition has been followed with parallel experiments in sometimes exactly the same experiment done on children, young children and infants, and uh, non-human primates, absolutely. So it seems that, you know, in, in our own corner of Animalia, there seems to be a reason to conserve in, in our brains and in our development these foundations and these scaffolds for many, many different phenomena. And that's what yes. developmental psychology is finding. Yes. and But still, I want to make it clear that this is a hypothesis, no matter how plausible you think it is or you don't think it is, it remains a hypothesis and it ought to be evaluated by evidence. So no matter how much I think this is a plausible hypothesis, I don't think we are absolutely sure what's the case, that that's actually is the case for sure. In some cases, more than others. So in the case of language, I think it's much more controversial than in the case of, say, uh, core knowledge of objects in infants. But again, it's not about that, because lay people's issue with that is not about the science. It's not about the quality of evidence. It's the question that bothers them. It's the proposal that some core concepts or notions are available to us innately that they think is an oxymoron. They think that makes absolutely no sense. And so what do, what do we know about this resistance? Is it moral shock? Is it, you know, a cognitive gap? Um, what's, as we study the phenomena of this, this, you know, be, this, uh, people being perplexed at, at, at notions of innateness, what do we know about that state of being perplexed? So it could be all of the above, right? There are many ways to hell, as they say, right? There are many ways in which you can be biased about uh, your own human nature. Steven Pinker talked a lot about how it's our concerns about the social implications that may very well be the case. It could be just because infants are so helpless, we think there's no way they know stuff, they're so cute. Uh, there are many explanations and they're not mutually exclusive. The reason why I think they're insufficient is that our nativist intuitions are very nuanced and very selective. So it's not the case that we deny all forms of innateness. It's not Mm. the case that we think that we are entirely a blank slate. Rather, people think that it's ideas that cannot be innate. 
epistemic states, whereas non-epistemic states, they have no problems with that. So they have no problem assuming that emotions are innate. In fact, people are positively biased in a paper that I had with Lisa Feldman-Barrent and others. We have shown that people are, in fact, positively biased that to think that a hunter-gatherer would immediately recognize Western facial emotions when asked. Not the case, actually. It's controversial, but I, I, right, but it's possibly not the it's case. More complicated than yeah, that. Yeah, more least. complicated for sure. Um, they think that infants, newborn infants, would prefer happy faces to angry faces. That's actually false. That has been shown, right? Um, they think that infant that people have no problems accepting that motor capacities like squatting down is innate. So the challenge is first to explain why these particular psychological traits are considered innate and innate in others are not, and why in particular it's ideas, epistemic states that people deny as being innate. And the second is when you look more closely about what drives their intuition, you see that what people think to be innate has a lot to do with what people identify as being in the body. Huh. And there is, and in fact, in a causal way, because one can manipulate it and you can show that the more people can attribute a certain psychological trait to the body, the more likely they are to think it's innate. So people think emotions are innate precisely because they think they show up on their face. Whether that right or wrong is a separate issue, but people are convinced that you can tell happiness on the face. And it's because they think that, that they assume that happiness is innate, whereas ideas, where are they, right? They're not anywhere in the body. And it's precisely because they can't identify where in the body ideas are. I mean, we know cognitively that's in the brain, but we don't really think about it in this way intuitively. It's precisely because we can't identify the embodied um, uh, manifestation of ideas that we believe they are not innate. And these intuitions, why those... uh, the selectivity of uh, our innateness intuitions and their link to the body are both aspects that are not explained by current theories. So to, 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 to widen the frame a little bit, um, what you're saying is that there are studies of different types in which you'll bring human beings into the lab. These are adults at this point, maybe, um, you know, folks that can give informed consent. Um, And then you present them with different uh, maybe uh, scenarios or with different, um, you know, postulates or Mm -hmm. with different statements. Um, And you can alter the order of those statements. You can tell them, look, here's what scientists are saying about this topic. Or look, here's a human being and here are some decisions they made. And here's what doctors found out about their body. Or look, here's um, some kids that grew up in this circumstance and in this other circumstance. And here's... uh, you know, here, here seem to be their behaviors and preferences. And then you can ask people um, to react to these statements and to, to, to form beliefs or confidences in them. Um, and what you find um, in this type of psychological investigation is uh, a few different principles about how people form beliefs about innateness. Right. What you're also arguing is that some of these ways that people form beliefs about innateness are themselves innate. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's 
he did two separate claims. So let me clarify a little bit. So the way we, the methodology, the way we have addressed the question of what people believe, um, first we asked them, well, one thing we did was simply take the same experiments that have been done with infants when with newborns, explain to people, here's how the experiment works. Here is the hypothesis. If this capacity is in fact innate, then X, Y, Z should follow. What do you think? Will X, Y, Z follow or not? Will newborns recognize, prefer happy faces to angry faces? And they tell you, sure. So you, you ask the person to, in their mind, run the experiment. Exactly. We invited them to play the scientists. And they were very clear that it's ideas in particular that cannot be innate, whereas the other stuff can be. A second way that we examine that... Can I ask, so what yeah. types of ideas did they, they, they said that it's impossible that this idea is innate? Are these... Uh, p- political beliefs or these no, beliefs no, no. about it's, culture? It's the, it's the, so in these cases, we actually told them about the precise experiments that have been run in newborns for example, and young infants. So for example, would newborns understand that for lights and for sounds share something in common? We told them, well, if they do, then they will look longer when you present for sounds and for lights as opposed to four with eight. Will infants do that? Answer no way. There, we know the research. The research is, yes, newborns showed this knowledge. People denied. Um, many examples like that. So all there are actual, so the thing is here, we know what the actual experiment, the experimental results are, yet, and against that backdrop, we can evaluate what people are saying and show that they are systematically wrong here. Huh. And maybe I should and, and the second way that we, we moved uh, to look at that is present people with a desert island situation. So the reason why desert island is because one definition of innateness is that innate traits are ones that emerge spontaneously. So even if you have no opportunity to learn them from others, people should still have uh, uh, this capacity. So we told them, suppose you take a bunch of human infants, you raise them, all as a group, separate from others, but fully cared for, so they're, they're not you know, abused or anything, but they have no opportunity to learn particular traits. Will those uh, infants, as they grow up, understand, have a notion of person? Would they have a notion of number? Would they be able to squat down? And, you know, and a bunch of traits like that. And the answer is ideas, no way, others, Sure, right. Emotions, uh, uh, motor capacities, they would emerge spontaneously. So, and then we asked them about non humans, we asked them about animals, so on and on and on. And there was strong convergence about what people thought is innate and what people did not think is innate. In a separate line of research, we tried to figure out why, and that uh, simply by, uh, again, you know, starting from our story about what is the basis for the bias and examining it in in a detailed fashion. So what what are some of the theories about why it is that people might reject the idea um, that these things that we're going to call ideas, um, these things that people don't in their folk psychology attribute to quote unquote, you know, a circuit in the body or an organ in the body or some, you know, materialist core of the body. Um, why is it that people 
form this distinction? And why is it that people are happy to find that things on one side of this line that they draw are innate and are so intensely opposed to the other? Yeah. So the theory that I outline in the book is that these biases arise from a perfect storm. And the perfect storm arises from the collision of two fundamental principles. One is dualism. The other is essentialism. So let me try to explain what they are, right? So um, there's a lot of research that shows that people are intuitive dualists. And we're not talking Descartes here. We're not talking philosophy. We're talking totally a tacit psychological bias that people hold under the hood. And when you look at how people behave uh, naturally and in psychological experiments, they show evidence that they treat the mind differently from the body. If nothing else, look at the uh, huge evidence for reincarnation stories across cultures. It's a very, very broad human phenomenon that people think that the mind continued to exist despite the demise of the body. Even people who deny that they uh, believe in afterlife, there is still evidence that tacitly they consider the mind as separate from the body. And ideas are the least anchored in the body. Now, this has implications to how we think about innateness because our innateness intuitions are governed by another set of, uh, another principle that is called essentialism. And here, even young children believe that living things are what they are because they are born with some immutable essence uh, that they uh, hold innately. So why is it that a dog is brown like its mother? Well, infant children tell you that the dog acquired a piece of mother, some tiny brown piece of mother that it got from its mother. So they think that there is something that makes you who you are, that you get inherent from your biological parent, and that thing is part of your body. And here is where the two collide, right? Because if you think that what's innate in us is in our body, and you think that our ideas are not in our body, so our ideas are simply in the wrong place for being innate, right? So ideas cannot innate. It simply arises from um, our understanding of innateness and ideas. Wow. So it's you set these two principles up like a syllogism, and what you and what and what and what you know you crank you crank that through. And what comes out is this resistance to ideas, which is a lot of things which don't even to me as someone who's you know had to take classes about motor development. These don't think these things don't necessarily seem like ideas. Like I know that there's physical substrates to you know some of some of these things um, in the brain, but I guess I guess I, I have to ask, and 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 I can guess that the answer is that it's 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 complicated. But um, are these things that are like these two principles, are they sort of trans-historical, um, you know, pieces of what it is that we believe? Or is this something that we might find in modernity, in a world in which people yeah. have all these ideas about race and about biological sex and gender and about, you know, essentialist ideas about, you know, disease and about all these other traits or maybe visible features of who it is that 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 people are? Um is it is it kind of you know is this perfect storm happening only because we're in the current intellectual climate of what the world looks like in in 2020 and in the you know 20th century and 21st century or 
might it might might it be a little bit deeper yeah. than that? Yeah, great question. And like all the good questions, we don't know the answer completely. We certainly don't know why the perfect storm arises, and we don't know that whether or not it would arise elsewhere. And uh, we are now in the process of trying to find out. Um, we don't even know if the ingredients of the two storms, dualism and essentialism, are present universally, although there mm. are some hints that they might be. Mm. So it's really easy to think about a dual about dualism as a Western phenomenon. It's so, you know, uh, um, uh, central to uh, religion, um, Judeo-Christian religion in particular, but sure. really the, the, there is evidence for um, dualism quite uh, generally, in particular, um, as I mentioned, afterlife belief are present, uh, are quite uh, frequent, cross-linguistic, Dualist uh, beliefs in the mind are separate from the body are quite frequent across cultures. Um, there is even evidence that members of small-scale societies, who, or in particular one society, who do not think about the mind and not talk about the mind, still behave as if the mind is separate from the body. And huh. those suggest to us that it's not something that people acquire simply by hearing talk about the mind as being this abstract thing people naturally arrive at this conclusion. I don't think we know enough, but I think the evidence there is to suggest that. Same for essentialism. There is evidence that in a culture where people believe that physical traits can arise by social interactions, they still arrive, behave when asked uh, in line with essentialism. So some hints to suggest that they're not just us. Meaning Western phenomenon that it's that this is a deep aspect of folk psychology um, and of folk biology and folk sociology and anything else that you might have universally. Yeah, yeah. I want to ask how what, what what this perfect storm when it when it kind of rains down on us. Um, where does this cause uh, conflicts or contradictions? Where does this cause tensions that we might have to think about? Resolving, I can imagine a few in the realm of things like, um, you know, our society and our societal and personal theories about criminality, about disease. But can you walk us through through a little bit of that? Sure. So that's exactly what I explore in the book. Once you have these two uh, ingredients, right, thinking about the body and thinking about innateness, then whenever you appeal to those ingredients, you are bound to run into trouble. And I explored in several domains. So in how we reason about the brain, in how we reason about mental disorders, why people believe that in the 20th century, when you know that psychiatric disorders are brain disorders like that affect the body like any other disease, people believe that um, have some pretty irrational uh, 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 misconceptions and biases against psychiatric disorders, um, why people think that cognitive disorders like dyslexia, they have the opposite set of biases against them. Um, yes, a bunch of phenomena that all can be uh, attributed to the same two biases. So for, for quite a, a bit of time, um, people may have attributed somebody's uh, behavior to something other than the brain. They might have thought that it was, you know, they had been touched by the wrong spirit or they might have their body might be 
you know, disfigured or disabled. Something happened when they were, you know, in utero or when they were developing. But today, um, whenever we want to, you know, truly ask deep questions about um, about all sorts of behaviors, about all sorts of aspects of a person's nature, we've started to ask questions about not even their whole nervous system, but specifically about their brain, the seat of everything that is core to a, to a person. Um, in an age, you know, in an age of the brain and knowing that there's this perfect storm overhead, what are some issues that we might run into? Um, if we think about the brain rationally from the point of view of science, then we shouldn't run to in, into any particular issues because we are trained to analyze those uh, questions um, in a scientific systematic way. But when we approach the same questions intuitively, people demonstrably run into quite strange conclusions. So people attribute to the brain things that it really can deliver. Um, For example, we have found in the lab that when you tell people, um, suppose you have a you know, schizophrenia, suppose you have depression, and suppose we can detect it in your brain compared to supposed to we can test the same disorder behaviorally. How likely is it? Why does the person have the disorder? How did this disorder arose? And the answer that people gave you is, if you can detect it in the brain, then it's because the person was born with the disorder, which makes absolutely no sense, right? Finding it in the brain offers no evidence for innateness. All our capacities are in the brain, whether they're innate or acquired. Everything that we think and do and feel is in the brain. But if you're an essentialist and if you believe that your innate essence is in your body, and it could be elsewhere, right? Because there are there is there's entity outside the body that is also us, the mind. Then upon receiving evidence that something is in the body, then it satisfies the requirement for innateness. And therefore you believe that a psychiatric disorder that is linked to the brain is more likely to be innate. Falsely, that also is linked to some stigma that people associate when uh, with a disorder when they link it to the brain. So people seem to think that if it shows in the brain that it tells you something fundamentally about your essence, which is totally false, right? Because everything that we are innate or not is in the brain. Learning that it's in the brain offers no additional evidence for innateness. But because of our essentialist framework, we believe that uh, the brain offers some evidence. There's also another reason why I think people think the brain is attractive, and that is because the brain really solves to us a fundamental problem that we are rarely thinking about, but I think it's kind of in, are in the back of our mind, both as lay people and perhaps even as a scientist, right? So, so I'm holding this battle right now, right? And I reach my hand to the battle because I want to drink. So naturally, we explain behavior in mentalistic terms. We say, okay, I had this desire for the battle, and it's this desire that is presumably in my mind that caused my hand, which is very part of my body, to move toward the battle. So that's the mentalistic explanation that even children naturally uh, 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 approach. But the problem is that 
as we said, we also have intuitive physics. And per intuitive physics, objects only interact by contact, right? Remember the billiard balls. It's only contact with another physical object that can make um, objects move. So how is that that my ephemeral mind can command my material body to move? Now, normally you have no option, right? Normally you only think in terms of intuitive psychology, so you have no better explanation of why behavior works. And even though you might have this tension, dual tension at the back of your mind, between this and no explanation at all, you might still hold the mentalistic explanation, whether you're a layperson or a scientist. But here comes the magic from neuroscience that tells you, aha, we now have a better explanation of what's going on. It's not this ethereal mind that suddenly commands the physical body to move. It's the brain. It's a piece of matter. It's a piece of meat that commands another piece of meat to move. Object interacting with object. The dissonance, the dualist dissonance is all of a sudden solved. So it's no wonder that people think that brain explanations are very satisfying, that they really solve a huge problem. Um, Research that we run in the lab actually supports this conclusion and suggest that that may that the dualist and its consequences may very well be taking place. So together, dualism and essentialism may explain why people go insane in some way about the brain. Um, can you can you so given that the ingredients for this perfect storm are active um, and it's raging overhead, what are some areas of investigation of reason and reasoning? Uh, in modern society that, uh, you know, uh, come under it and uh, where we might want to start thinking about our own reasoning about things like innateness. Yeah. So one case that is really comes to mind is how the public reasons about mental disorders, right? So um, in the, towards the end of this uh, last century, there was this drive to try to educate the public that mental disorders are diseases like all others, that uh, they affect the brain, that therefore it's a disease like all, you know, like cancer. And in so doing, the hope was that this would prevent people from getting into the stigma that is associated with psychiatric disorders. If you break your foot, it makes sense to go to the doctor. If you have depression, it's not a moral failing. It makes sense to go to the doctor. Exactly. Exactly. Didn't work. In fact, it backfires because in, there's evidence that um, to some extent, actually, the brain talk also, it, the brain talk, in fact, made people more stigmatized uh, compare in their reactions towards psychiatric disorders. And the question is why that's the case. Why uh, invoking the brain actually um, uh, uh, created uh more severe public reactions toward mental disorders. The two principles that we have discussed are two suspects actually can offer an explanation, right? Because peresentialism, what's in our body is innate in us. So the moment you invoke the brain, you're actually telling us depression is not somewhere in the mind, it's actually in the brain and in so doing, you actually are satisfying the condition for innateness. You are suggesting that people that now you have more evidence to assume that depression is innate. Therefore, your essence is different to mine. There is something that is inherently wrong with your essence, which will in turn trigger stigma. Crucially, if you think that 
the mind is separate from the body, then if you only tell people, listen, this disorder is diagnosed in a behavioral test, not in the brain, then now you have kind of a, a way out, so to speak, because now you can link depression not with the brain, but rather with this ethereal mind, which is not innate. Um, and then you don't uh, uh, conclude that the disorder is innate. Um, in studies in my lab, that's exactly what we did. We pr presented people with patients, say a depression patient, which is diagnosed either by a brain test or by a match behavioral test. Both tests are giving exactly the same information. But when we ask people how likely it is that the person's family, their twin brother that they've never met before, will have the same disorder, in other words, how likely it is that it's innate, people said that if the disorder is diagnosed by the brain, then it is more likely to be innate, more likely to manifest in uh, family members compared to when the disorder is diagnosed by a much behavioral test. Likewise, people thought that if John's depression is diagnosed in his brain, then they um, were more uh, showing more evidence of stigma towards John, so they felt less comfortable with having John take care of your um, children, of marrying your sister, and so forth. So this, again, is an example where essentialism here is the main player, um, causes this uh, stigma that uh, is uh, affecting how we reason about mental disorders. Wow. And presumably, regardless of what brain-based theory is at play, whether it's chemical imbalances or networks of the brain, or whether we tie you know, these disorders to the size of particular regions, and uh, obviously I'll note for our listener here that all of these are um, you know, interesting features to study, but um, I don't think any of these are sufficient explanations of complex uh, disordered uh, states. Um, but presumably any one of those theories nonetheless would trigger this element of essentialism. Um, and so to combat that, presumably the people that are doing, you know, public communication about mental disorders and even the scientists that are working on these things, um, this is something that they ought to keep in mind um, and contend with. Yes, indeed. And it is the hope that uh, by educating people of the source of their biases, we might be able to combat them. Um, and so for anyone that's uh, doing work about um, features that could be innate or aren't, people that are working on uh, tying features of, of, of human behavior to a part of the brain or a part of the body or making arguments about innateness and who have to do public communication about whether these things are innate or not, recommend that you, of course, check out The Blind Storyteller, How We Reason About Human Nature by Dr. Iris Berendt. Um, Dr. Berendt, how can people get in touch with you uh, if they'd like to learn more and where should they go if they're curious about the subject? Uh, check out our website, the Language and Mind Lab at Northeastern University. Um, people are also welcome to email me at i.berendt at northeastern.edu. Fantastic. And as you were mentioning to me, as we were recording, this research is actively ongoing. You'll find it in all the regular cognitive science and developmental journals. Yeah, thank you for so much for taking the time, uh, Iris, and I look forward to seeing where this program goes. Great. Thanks. It was a pleasure talking to you, Joseph. <laughs>